encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I've really been enjoying going through this. I've, I don't think any other book of the Bible that I've gone through verse by verse that I've read and studied so much in depth about. And I uh, appreciate a lot of good comments from last week's message as we tried to talk about the New Testament believer's response in light of the Old Testament law. And uh, we continue that discussion. And one thing I just want to give a caveat, um, I could spend three hours and we could talk about the enormity of the law throughout the Bible. But as we talk today, understand that these comments are uh, contextual to what's here. Uh, we can't always speak broadly to every particular area of the law. So I'm thinking at the end of the series or somewhere, we'll take a, a Sunday and just talk about what is the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit. What is specifically, what are the laws we as New Testament believers are responsible by grace to fulfill? So with that thought in mind, Galatians chapter 3 for our scripture reading, verses 15 through 18, the apostle Paul's the writer and he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or as to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. That is why, what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we come today and I thank you that you've allowed me to be your messenger. And Lord, even though I'm unworthy and, and sinful, I thank you that you can forgive sin and use each one of us as your honored vessels to carry out the word of God. And so, Lord, thank you for allowing me to be the conduit today. Open our minds, open our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Help us to receive it. Help us to uh, have it speak to us right where we are sitting in our seats this morning. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapters 3, verses 1 through 14, Paul lays out from the Old Testament that Abraham was justified by faith and not the law. This included both Jews and Gentiles. In the rest of this chapter, Paul speaks anticipating the Jewish legalist question of the fact that pre-law Abraham was saved by faith, but when the law came, the way of salvation changed. That's what the Jewish legalists were trying to teach in the churches in Galatia. But Paul answers this anticipated argument in verses 15 through 22 of chapter 3, and then in verses 23 through 29, he talks about personal application, how these two views that contradict one another, uh, how they would fall out, how they would affect the lives of people. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. This is important. This is a summary of the, of the sermon. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional to his people, solely relying on God's faithfulness. The promise centers on God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative, God's sovereignty, and God's blessings. The law was conditional. Conditional covenant of the law relying on man's faithfulness. The law set forth a religion dependent upon man if all you had was the law. 
The law centers on man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility, man's behavior, and his or her obedience. And it all hinges today on Genesis 12, 2 through 3. You'll see these verses on the screen. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, here's the key, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The gospel comes through the Jews into the New Testament to the Gentiles, and it comes through Israel and through Abraham. So we're going to finish up chapter 3 today in this ongoing discussion Paul is having with the Jewish legalists as to what is required for salvation and how we're to live to glorify God and become more like Jesus during our time after salvation here on earth. Next week, we'll move into chapter 4 where Paul shares some more theological principles, but then we get to uh, Paul's application in 5 and 6 of Galatians where he talks about how to live out our lives in the spirit and not the flesh. So let's look first of all in your outline, the superiority of the Abrahamic promise. The superiority of the Abrahamic promise. We'll read these verses again. We just read them a few moments ago in Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. The promise to Abraham is permanent, is permanent. The word promise is used eight times in these verses, referring to God's promises to Abraham that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And part of that meaning, the gospel is going to go out through you to everyone. According to the Jewish legalists, they're now arguing that the new covenant came when the law was given and a new way of salvation was established. Following the works of the law brings salvation, according to these Jewish legalists. God's covenant with Abraham concerning the blessings of all the nations would then be null and void. To refute this, Paul declared that just as a properly executed Roman uh, contract or will, or last will and testament, cannot arbitrarily be set aside or changed, probably a reference to the Greek law of that time. So the promises of God are unchangeable, immutable. Paul uses an analogy here, in our human world, a contract is legally binding. It can either be ignored or modified after it's signed. Something has to be done to change the terms of that contract after the parties sign it. Once two parties conclude an agreement, a third party cannot come along years later and change that agreement. The only persons who can change an original agreement are the persons who made it. To add anything to it or take anything from it would be illegal. In the same way, the law cannot add conditions to receiving the inheritance, as we read in verse 18. The law cannot provide these things for two reasons. The promise was graciously granted by God himself. And second of all, it was made 430 years before the law came. For Paul, the law and the promise cannot mix. If the inheritance were based on obedience to the law, that would nullify God's promise to Abraham. We see in these verses the word offspring. That's the Greek word seed. And what's interesting, if you study it in the Greek, in the, New Te- in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, you'll understand that that uh, word seed could mean one seed 
or a multiple, multitude of seed to go out and plant. And notice what Paul says here. He's very clear about which term he's talking about in verse 16. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring. He didn't leave it up to context or conjecture. He described that he was talking about the seed of Jesus Christ that would come through the line of Abraham. There's only one family of God. Abraham's seed is Christ, and all those in him are part of Abraham's seed. And the Old Covenant looks forward into the future to the cross to cover their sins. The New Covenant starts at the cross, moves into the future. Faith is required by both of these covenants. The Old Covenant, by faith, looks forward to the New Covenant, while the New Covenant looks backward by faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Another thing you see, the promise of, to Abraham does not become subservient. Subservient to the law that came to Moses 430 years later. There's some that believe that as revelation rolls out, okay? First we get, you know, this conversation with God and Abraham. But then we get to Moses and the law. Well, that must be more important because that revelation came later. That's not how the word of God works. The promise to Abraham does not become subservient to the law that came to Moses 430 years later. Look at verse 17 of Galatians 3. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The Abrahamic covenant is superior because, verse 15, the covenant is unchanging and is irre irrevocable, irre unable to be revoked. Verse 16, the covenant is Christ-centered. Verse 17, the Abrahamic covenant is superior because due to chronology, it's timeless and the covenant of the law is for a specified period of time. The covenant with Abraham only verified and ratified that it was by faith a person was saved. And think about that. That had happened in the Garden of Eden, right? We've talked about this many times. Adam and Eve sin. God comes down, where are you, Adam? And God has to, and Adam has to say, I have sinned, I've hidden myself, I'm now naked. And God, again, provides the sacrifice, the covering, but it was by faith that Adam and Eve were saved because of their relationship with God. In verse 18, because the Abrahamic covenant is more complete, the covenant law is based on man's performance in keeping the law, while the Abrahamic covenant is based on the power of God. Now, if you notice there, in verse 18, it says, given given or granted to give graciously, which points to the permanent character of the promise. An inheritance is received, not earned, and to work for what has already been promised to be given is foolish. It's a waste of time, and Christ would have died needlessly. Galatians 2.21, Paul said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's take a moment. I want to encourage you to take your Bible, turn over to Genesis chapter 15. We've talked about this promise. We're going to look at it in detail. Genesis 15, these verses are not going to be on the screen. We're going to read a lengthy section of Scripture, the entire chapter of Genesis 15. And then we're going to summarize it. This is so important. This is the description of the promise 
and why it's unconditional. Look at Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, and if you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your father, fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the animal pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergashites, and the Jebusites. Now, what does that all mean? A summary of the story. God says to him, bring me five animals, a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Cut them in half and put them on either side of a walkway so they make a little river of blood in the middle. I'm sure Abraham was at first thinking, what is this all about, right? The idea is when you cut those two things in half and you're about to make this agreement, you're saying that you're going to carry out your agreement because you can't bring these two pieces back together and bring life. It's impossible. You and I, we live in a written age, so when we want to get a guarantee, we ask for a written contract. When a contractor quotes you a price to work on your house, your house, you ask for it in writing. So if he comes back and says later, well, actually, I've decided to change the price. You say, but here's your name on the contract guaranteeing this price. Well, in their day, instead of signing a contract, they cut a few animals open and walked through the river of blood so that it splashed on their robe saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. In other words, may you take my life. The Hebrew word for covenant here means to cut. And you think about it, you almost wish in some ways you had this kind of agreement with one of your contractors. When they say, how much are you charging for the paint? I don't think so, my friend. 
I've got the bloody road to prove that you are to keep this contract. Well, they're supposed to make the covenant at sundown, and it says in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. We see later in that chapter a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Same words used to describe God's presence on Mount Sinai. The smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It says, God went through the pieces. Who didn't pass through with him? Abraham did not. In those days, if a king made a covenant with a servant... The servant walked through because it was always assumed that the king will keep his side of the bargain. This is the only covenant recorded in history where the king goes through and the servant does not. The meaning is clear. If God fails to keep up his side of the bargain, he will pay with his blood. But if Abraham fails to keep his side of the bargain, God will pay pay with his blood. I want you to really think about this. God makes himself responsible for both sides of the covenant. God says, I'll pay the penalty if I don't keep my end of the bargain, and I'll pay your penalty if you don't keep your side of the bargain either. This is what is called an unconditional promise. That's what makes it unconditional. It was all on God. In 2 Timothy 2, 12 through 13, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, He will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He will always be faithful to keep his word. And this, of course, gives us one of the clearest pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Just like Abraham fell into a deep sleep, we were in a deep sleep, a dreadful sleep of sin. The Gospels tell us that when Christ died a dreadful death, darkness descended on the earth and covered that area. And Jesus' blood flowed out of his side like a river. Was God's son dying because he hadn't kept his end of the bargain? No, he was dying because you and I hadn't kept our end of the bargain to live a perfect life. He took my sins and his sorrow and he made them his very own. He bore my burden on Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. Where was I? I should have been dying on that cross. It reminds me of that great hymn, How Marvelous. How wonderful and my song shall ever be. Thankful for the grace of God. So the application here is God said to Abraham in his promise that he would bless other nations through him. He said, I will, unconditional promise. Well, I hope you get the point that God's promise to Abraham to bring the gospel to all nations through Abraham's descendants is that unconditional promise. God will never renege on that promise. Next, the inferiority of the law to save and provide righteousness. The inferiority of the law to save and provide righteousness. Again, we're not speaking about all aspects of the law, but we're looking at the context here today. We see one of the purposes that law reveals man's complete and utter sinfulness. Look at verse 19 of Galatians 3. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. So verse 19, why the law? Well, Paul asked the question, 
What is the purpose of the law? One purpose is to show man's sinfulness and inability to be made righteous by obeying the law. And it's to bring us to the place where we see the need for God's mercy and grace to work in our lives through salvation. The law is good but inadequate to solve the sin problem mankind suffers from. Paul never said the law was bad. In fact, he says in Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I want to emphasize that the law is good. It is holy. It serves a very important purpose. It just stops short of solving the consequences of sin that it reveals. The law was given until the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came as the fulfillment of the promise God gave to Abraham. Verse 20 appears to be closely related to the last part of verse 19. And we could spend a lot of time, I did a lot of reading on what a mediator is. Some, it's discussed here that angels may have brought the law from God to Moses and handed it to him. So God wrote it, gave it to the angels, the angels gave it to Moses, Moses to the people. That may be what it's talking about, the intermediary. But the other side is that God came and dealt directly with Abraham one-on-one. -on -one. So we see the law does not and cannot bring salvation or sanctification. The law does not and cannot bring salvation or sanctification. Look at verses 21 through 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice there in verse 21, contrary. Law then contrary, is the law contrary to the promises of God? That word contrary means against, opposed to God's promise. The law was not in opposition to the promise of Abraham. But the law worked in conjunction with the promise to bring people to Christ, the Savior, the solution for sin. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 24. When we get there, it talks about how the law, the law was a, a guardian, a tutor to bring us to Christ. But the covenant of law was in fear because, verse 19, it cannot save. The second part of verse 19 and verse 20 the law was inferior because it needed a mediator, whereas God gave the promise directly to Abraham. Verses 21 and 22, the law was inferior because what the law accomplished, it could not provide forgiveness of sin and a righteous life. The law given by God was conditional and dependent on man's perfect obedience. In verse 22, the law revealed that everything and everyone is tainted and affected by sin. Here's an example of the conditional law. It tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, Moses said, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Notice the next word, if, if, making it conditional, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and 
possess. That is an example of the conditional law that was given in the Old Testament. So the application here is that God said to Moses when he provided the law, you shall not. Conditional. Depending on man's actions, man's obedience or disobedience, if you do X, I will do this. And so we see the difference between the promise that's unconditional and the law that's conditional. Here comes the great news. As the great Mercy Me songs, the best news ever. We get to the supreme solution. The law leads to faith in Christ. Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive. That word means enclosed. We were in a cage, no way out. Under law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law enclosed us, imprisoned us in sin. Continuing to comment on the purpose of the law, <clears throat> Paul used two figures of speech, liking the law to a prison, and then in a couple verses down, child-custodian relationship. Before this faith came means before the advent of faith in Jesus Christ. See verse 22. Justifying faith was operative in the Old Testament, but faith and the person and the work of Christ did not come until Jesus Christ was revealed. We see the law tutored us to bring us to Christ. Verse 24 is a key verse in this book. It says, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The Greek word there is pedagogy in our, in our language. And it, talked, it could be translated tutor. It could be guardian. It could be schoolmaster. It could be pedagogy. It could be chaperone. It could be any of those things you could put in there. But the idea is in this culture at this time, the rich, affluent people had a male slave. And that male slave was in charge or responsible for the children in the family. They were the guardians. They had to make sure they got them to school. They had to make sure they did their homework. They make sure they did their chores. Some of them actually used a whip on these kids in that culture to make sure they were disciplined and did all the things that was required of them that the parents had told the guardian to do. But then when the child or children reached the place of maturity in adulthood, the responsibility, the work of the guardian was over. Now they were adults. Now they were moving into a new phase in their life. In the middle of verse 24, it's not given a purpose statement, but a temporary expression says, our guardian until Christ comes. And that's what the law was. It was the tutor, it was the schoolmaster to bring us to the place where we need the Savior. Here's a good example. How many have been to Disney World or Disneyland? <clears throat> How many have ever ridden the monorail or the shuttles or anything down there, right? So you pay thousands of dollars to go to Disney World, right? Or Disneyland. And you get there, all right? And either you're living on, on the property or you're off-site. But you park your car somewhere and you've got to take the shuttle, the monorail, whatever it is. Guess what? You don't come there to just ride the monorails all day and the shuttles and one of the sky lifts that I went on. No, those things are to get you to the park where you can enjoy the great adventure that you spent the money on. Well, the law is like the shuttle. You don't glorify it. You use it as a vehicle to drive you to Jesus Christ. 
to bring you to faith in Christ. That's the purpose of the law here in verse 24 of Galatians 3. The faith we placed in Christ frees us from the law's demands. The faith we place in Christ frees us from the law's demands. I love that first song we sing, that we are free from our tomb, our grave of sin, that we sang in the opening of our service. Look at Galatians 3, 25 through 28. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no, there's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the age of the gospel or grace or church age or however you want to characterize this economy of time we're in, both Jews and Gentiles can become believers in Christ. Now all, even Gentiles, as well as Jews, all of us come together and we belong as one in Christ. Paul uses baptism as a shorthand of, for salvation here. Baptism is merely giving evidence of trusting in Christ by faith alone. But Paul here uses the metaphor of clothes. He says we put on there um, sons of God through faith. And then in verse 27, put on Christ. He uses uh, covering or clothing, putting on Christ as a metaphor, and we see that in Ephesians 4, we see that in Colossians 3, that we are new in Christ when we come to faith in him. But in verse 28, be careful with understanding this verse. The thing you have to understand is the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that everybody comes the same way to faith in Christ. But there are still distinctions in the society and culture that these people lived in. Remember what it says in verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Church history tells us that in the church of Rome, at the time the Gospels and the Word of God was being written in the New Testament, that the church of Rome was made up of about 45 to 50 percent of the believers as slaves in that church. I want you to get a picture of this. So they walk into the church to worship together and everyone in the room, masters and slaves, are one in Christ, okay? Their identity is found in Christ. They're all equal before the cross. But then when they walk out, because of the culture of that time, obviously we're against slavery 100%, but the culture of that time, they went out, they still had to be subservient to their masters, and we see that laid out through scriptures. We see when Paul talked about to the Jew first, speaking of the Jew and then the Gentile, in Romans 1 and Romans 2. In Ephesians 6, he says, once you get out of the worship service, slaves, obey your master. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands. Likewise, if in church ministry there's no difference between a man and a woman, why would Paul say that elders are to be men in 1 Timothy 3? So understand, understand what Paul is saying in that verse. And then we get to the faith we place in Christ justifies us just like Abraham was justified. The faith we place in Christ justifies us just like Abraham was justified thousands of years ago. In Galatians 3.29, as we close this chapter, and if you are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the summary statement of chapter 3. Whoever you are, what ethnicity, vocation, if you are in Christ, you're part of Abraham's offspring that came about by grace through faith. All believers in God in the Old Testament and Christ followers in the New Testament are now, and even now up through the present, are heirs of the promise, the fulfilling of God's promise to Abraham. You and I, according to Romans 8.17, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So here's our application. God always says to all people and all nations, repent, believe, and be saved. The message is the same. From the Old Testament to the New Testament into the future. Repent, believe, and be saved. When the Philippian jailer came to the Apostle Paul in that jail that night after the great earthquake and the chains dropped off, He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Our key thought this morning as we wrap up chapter 3 of Galatians is this. The law served its purpose in bringing the sinner to the Savior so that the Holy Spirit could transform us and set us apart for Christ. Understand how the law and the promise work together in conjunction. John Stott, who was a great English theologian, passed away a few years ago. I thought he gave a great summary of this chapter in Galatians 3. He said, we cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have been to Moses to be condemned. But once we've gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, guilt, and condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses send us to Christ. Do you understand that? You understand Galatians chapter 3. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for Paul's deep explanation. What good detail to understand how the law and how the grace of God through the finished work of Christ work together in conjunction. And Lord, I pray that you will uh, help us to understand that, to receive it to be thankful for it, to rejoice that because of the grace of God, because of the sin, because of the law showing us our sin, it brings us to the very doorstep of the grace of God so that we can have salvation in the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that as we ponder over this and think about these questions to meditate on over the week, that we would understand the relationship between the law the promise of Abraham. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.